Whether it's riding with new people you met on the platform or just riding with old teammates, the people that Zwift connects you with push you harder than you could ever push yourself, let alone when it's just you on the trainer in your garage or pain cave. My next favorite part is the training. Training is a huge part of Zwift. There are literally hundreds of customizable training plans you can choose from. And every workout is an immersive experience that can take you from Zwift's world-class climbs to the streets of London, New York, or even to a new Japanese-inspired world. Those are just a few of the nine unique worlds you can explore. Many times, I find myself just riding around, checking out the sites and seeing new little Easter eggs they've hidden in the game. When I'm riding one of the UCI championship courses or in the jungle on the gravel roads or inside a volcano, hey, I'm just taking it all in. Time seems to fly by, but I can still manage to get a great workout in every time. If you want to compete in races that put your training to the test and see if you're headed in the right direction, you can. There's a new event starting every five minutes, including massive group rides, races for every category, and even time trials. Right now, you can join the funnest fast event series with training rides, races, and thousands of other riders from around the world to chase. It's really never been easier to find your fun training indoors. I love it. All you need to get started is a bike, a trainer, and the Zwift app. Get a free seven-day trial, no strings attached, at Zwift.com. Zwift, where fun is fast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Bobby and Jens. My name is Bobby Julik, and as always, my trusted cohort over there in Berlin, the king of Berlin himself, Mr. Jens Voigt. Jensy, how's it going? It's all good. Um, fortunately, in that short time window between me finishing commentating the Tour de France and our podcast, the family decided to have Mexican food, and it was delicious. So I'm super happy and the tour was exciting today again. So couldn't be better. See, I'm kind of impressed when you said that uh, before we went live that, I mean, you know what Mexican food is. You've eaten a lot of Mexican food. It's one of your favorite foods. And I'm surprised that you actually said that a Mexican place in Berlin actually is to your standards. Well, first of all, I'm a firm believer of this theory that the quality of Mexican food goes down with the distance from the Mexican border, right? So Mexican food in California is a lot better than it is further up north. But living in Berlin now, or let's say since the wall came down and we could have Mexican food, which is now 31, 32 years this year is the first year that I go, yes, this is proper Mexican food, how I experienced it in Southern California or in Mexico itself. So it took me about 30 years to find a good place. Were you able to wash it down with uh, your favorite beer, the old Corona? Absolutely. Good All in man. style. <laughs> good <laughs> of man. course. Good man. Well, I tell you, Enzi, it's been um, an amazing Tour de France so far. I mean, you... That's your job all day long is watching and commentating. Um, what what are your some of your takeaways? I mean, it's just been one after another of these amazing characters doing these amazing things in the biggest race of the year. But like, what are halfway through? You know, what are your kind of standout performances, and what can we look forward to in the future in, until the end in Paris? Well, I now have twenty four years of experience. 17 as a bike rider, 7 as a commentator in the Tour de France. So yesterday I put out a tweet saying, with almost a quarter of a century experience, this is by far the most demanding, brutal, meanest start of the Tour de France I have seen in this entire period. And I have about 1,400 retweets. So I must hit the nerve with a lot, a lot of people. This is honestly, in all my experience, 
the toughest first week in the tour I've ever seen with crashes, drama, bad weather, the roads. It's just everything. Every day somebody's dreams get shattered, let alone bones get shattered. It is the toughest beginning of a tour I've ever seen. And the GC looks like it's getting taken over by the young kids. But the sprints, good old Mark Cavendish holds it with an iron fist. He rules that one. Said, nah, you young kids, you young punks, you're second to me. This is my show. So I love to see both of it. Tadej Pogacar, what is he, 22 years old now? Just killing it. And Kev, what, close to 40? Killing it as well. The tour is simply fantastic this year. It really is. And I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. I mean, Cav is very close to the record now. I know that's all we're going to talk about. Um, I don't want to date our podcast here too much, but like he has the chance to actually tie it and beat it before we, uh, this, this podcast comes out. So pronosticators of pronosticators, Jens, will Mark break Eddie Merckx's record of 34 stage wins in the Tour de France. He will tie, but not break it. Hmm. See, I, I'm going to disagree with you there. I mean, he is on such a roll. I think that this is such a big story and everyone has so much respect for Mark Cavendish. I'm not saying they're going to roll over, but do you really want to be that team or that individual that flicks Mark out of winning another stage or two or three or four. I mean, he could win quite a few more to go here. I, I don't think so. I think, A, his team is super strong. B, people are already dead tired and just kind of want to, you know, get this over with as quick as possible. But this, we're, we're witnessing history of a, you know, that of, of a record that we never thought would be broken because... Yeah, up until this year, we thought that Cav was done. I mean, he thought he was done. And now he's back. So to me, I mean, yes, Vanderpool and Alaphilippe and all these great riders, all these terrible crashes and all this drama that we've had, we're going to come out of this being so lucky that we actually got to watch history being made. And so I'm going to say, yes, he is going to win uh, or he is going to break the record. And he's going to do it and add at least one more to that record. So um, I think breaking it would be 35. I think he uh, he gets 35 or 36. So anyway, I mean, and we're not, yeah, we're halfway through, right? We got a lot more to go. But have you heard about these guys that are like racing the Tour de France guys that aren't in the race? Like we got two of them now. One guy, Lachlan Morton, we know Lachlan. He started and, you know, he's doing all the kilometers of the race and the transfers. And then we have another gentleman who is gave everybody a 10-day head start and is now trying to beat the Peloton to Paris. What do you think about that, Jens? Uh, well, we had a little, like today on, on, on Eurosport, we had a little um, side piece on Lachlan. Oof, the poor guy looked a little tired. I mean, you know, he's looking at 10 to 12 hours riding to cover the distance. He is looking, plus the transfers, he is looking at a total of 5,400 kilometers. So that is, just to quote Rigoberto Uran, totally loco, but also totally cool. I think something like that uh, Rigoberto Uran said. Um, it is fantastic. Plus, it's for good cause. It's for World Bicycle Relief. Um, the other one I just found about yeah recently about it. So so tell me again. He gave us he gave them a ten day headset. So he's starting to chase him down now, and he's gonna be riding overnight nonstop. Or is he doing the same stages like the pros? Yeah. So it's it's Jack Thompson that's doing this whole thing, and yeah, he's gonna ride every individual stage of the tour. Um, started started a day or two ago. And wants to beat the Peloton all the way to, to Paris. So he's not only, um, yeah, he's giving them a head start. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. And then there's another person, a personal friend of mine. Uh, I wish I would have known more about this, but his name is Jean-Luc Perez. And he's doing every stage of the tour with a young kid who's living with diabetes. And it's 
Haka just did it. So we need to learn some more about this. I need to get old Jean-Luc Perez on the on the phone, but I know he's been been busy. But here we have, you know, three, at least three people doing like this crazy endurance ultra distance cycling outside of the tour using the tour as the backdrop. I, I think it's I think it's great. I think it's great. But uh, moving on to today's podcast, our interviewee today, uh, our guest, if you will, Mr. Jim Miller. Um, Jim really needs no introduction. He won't admit to that, but he is one of the, the most popular and best coaches out there in the world of cycling. Overall, great guy. And um, we just kind of set him down today talking about the Olympics the vision for USA Cycling and got into a little bit of detail of what it was like uh, following behind all these Olympians in the follow cars during time trials. And he's been in quite a few of those. So sit back and relax. Jim Miller. Well, today we have one of the most well-known coaches in the world. He's coached many, many, many Olympic athletes, world champions, you you name it, he's done it. Jim Miller, welcome to Bobby and Jens. The timing is is pretty cool. I mean, we're we're not that far away from from the Olympics, you know. There's a lot going on which uh definitely want to talk about, but to our listeners out there, Jim, give us a little bit of backstory. Um, you know, I I kind of know it because I've known you for so long, but let us know a little bit how you got into cycling and more specifically the coaching side of things. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's cycling is an interesting thing and how, how we all get into it. It's generally peer driven. It was no different for me. I grew up ski racing, uh, touring ACL had been riding mountain bikes just as cross training anyways, and just having fun. And, and I had a strength coach is like, you have a choice. You can either come in here and lift weights or you can ride bikes. And I'm like, I'll ride bikes. Uh, <clears throat> long story short, then I was like, found out there was a mountain bike race in, in my hometown, which was Casper, Wyoming. You guys probably remember the Casper classic. Uh, oh, heck yeah. Yeah. What a race that was. Did, we need to bring that one back. Yeah, we do. Uh, did this mountain bike race <clears throat> and was, was hooked. And then I wanted to know how to get fast on the mountain bike. Everybody said, ride a, ride a road bike. I started racing road bikes. Uh, I was pretty young, Bobby, you and I are the same age. Uh, like 18, you were the, you were the big wheel in Colorado. Everybody was like, Oh my God, Bobby Julie. Uh, but nobody in Casper is like, Oh my God, Jim Miller. Uh, <laughs> so I, I've sort of picked and clawed my way to, to through bike racing for 10, 15 years. I raced on a lot of teams with Dirk Friel, uh, common buddy. And, you know, if you remember the nineties for an American, it was really, really hard to get on pro teams. If, if you got in a domestic pro team, you effectively were like amateur national champion. If you went to Europe, you either did it in living in somebody's barn or, or you were one of the best five guys in America. And it was just, it was just really hard. Uh, the, the sending a fax and moving into somebody's barn and hoping they race you in Kermesses did not sound appealing to me at 22 years old. It sounded a touch fishy. Um, so I just stayed and raced domestically and, uh, finished, finished college, went to college, got a degree in exercise physiology, um, was interested in trying to understand how training actually worked for myself because there was nobody then to guide you how to guide you through training programs or through a training cycle or what you needed to do prepare. You got the standard, right? 30,000 kilometers, take a week, take a week off for you race and, and go get it. And that just seemed crazy to me that it was that simple. Uh, so I ended up coaching, um, writing training programs for myself. I had a couple, couple buddies who were like, how do you decide what we do every day? And I'm like, well, honestly, I'm making it up. But, uh, as I make mistakes, I learn and we make changes and, and lo and behold, they got, uh, they became pretty good. They, they made national teams, they made pro teams, uh, and then success sort of begets success. And, and you just start getting more and more. Uh, athletes who asked, I did, and uh, better athletes. And then eventually, uh, 2001, the national team called and asked if I would be interested in interested in being their women's uh, national road coach. Which at the time I was not actually overly interested, but uh, it was a job, and 
and not everybody gets to be a national team coach. So I took it and I think the rest is probably history from there. You did really well. I mean, uh, what is it like? Uh, just 14 Olympic medals. You helped winning um, athletes from the US plus a number of world championship titles. Um, is it like the first Olympic medal, the best? And you remember every minute of preparing it? Or do you have to, like, any special moments out of all these medals, all these years of success? Or any special difficult moment where you go, oh my God, I went through hell in that month? Yeah, um, the next one's always the best one. <laughs> so true, so true. <laughs> uh, that's that's the curse of of I don't know. I guess our our characters. Um, the next one's always the best one. But uh, you, you know, it's really interesting because even when when I mean Bobby's intro to me, when people intro me, you just say what you mentioned, Jens. I'm still like trying to scrape by and, and prove that I belong and I can make it and, and that I'm a good coach. And I'm like, I hope nobody figures out I'm a, I'm a, uh, a joker. So it never feels like I'm overly successful. I'm sitting in a spare bedroom, banging out training programs, talking to athletes every day, trying to convince them they can win something and be somebody and be, and accomplish something that they might not even believe in. And it just sort of all, ends up where you're like wow i actually did accomplish a lot and and it even catches me off guard and by surprise uh, i would say <clears throat> if i were thinking about one medal though the most difficult medal that i thought was uh the first world title of Kristen armstrong and it was like learning how to win is is different than competing Every, we're all competitors we all compete we all know how to compete uh But knowing how to win and learning how to win, that took us time. And once we once we learned how to win, uh, then the formula is like, oh wow, that's actually pretty simple now. And and it's a it's a lot of rinse and repeat and replicate and uh, things of that nature. But that first win, that first big win, was was super hard. And we went through a lot of uh, heartache to get there. A lot of losing, a lot of failure, a lot of setbacks. But once it happened, then it then it felt like okay, now we. Now we somewhat have this figured out. And don't you think that's, I mean, our sport is so data-driven nowadays. Um, more and more, <laughs> more and more data streams are flipping out there, uh, you know, on a daily basis. But in your opinion, what, what percentage of this sport is mental? I mean, I, I'm flabbergasted of the changes that you can make with just a, a different mentality, a winning mentality, a podium potential mentality. But I'd be interested to hear your opinion on what percentage of the sport is actually mental and instead of all the data. Uh, I'm, first of all, I love data. I'm, I'm, I will look at all the data you'll provide me. Uh, but I also quickly acknowledge that uh, all the data in the world is useless unless it helps you make a decision. If it doesn't help you make a decision, then it's It's absolutely, absolutely meaningless. And that can, you can drive that down to, to really simple numbers if you want. I mean, you go back to some of the, the old school guys we grew up racing with. Uh, you'll probably remember the name Randy Wicker. Man, that, oh, yeah. that guy didn't care about anything but speed. You, you could talk power. You could talk, damn, you could talk anything. And he'd be like, yeah, but we only did that like 42K an hour. That's not that fast. And, but to him, it was everything and it meant everything. If, if you did a, uh, race and it was 51 K an hour, then all the respect in the world from him. But if it was 42, nothing. And now if you were to ask people how fast the race was, they, they have no clue. They're just like, I don't know. Right. So it's, if, if it doesn't, if the data doesn't mean anything, it doesn't mean anything. And if it doesn't help you make a decision, it doesn't mean anything. So, so first to everybody that's really into the data. It's like, look, you have to, if you're not using it, don't, don't measure it. Um, if you're measuring it, then use it. Otherwise it's just super complicated and it just muddles the situation. But in terms of the mental side of the sport, I think the mental side is huge. Um, man, you take, you take the top 10 GC contenders, let's say the top five GC contenders of the tour physiologically, they are the same, right? They, they know each other's numbers. They, they can train to each other's numbers. They know what they can do on climbs. They know what each other can do on climbs. Uh, 
and it really just comes down to this mono a mono battle. And for sure, when it's raining and it's cold and your hands freezing and you've got three more climbs, that is all mental at that point. It's all mental. So talking mental, what is your, the characteristics you look for in an athlete? Or can you like see uh, by just talking to one, <clears throat> you would like to coach him or there's hope for that athlete? Or could you basically like after, like let's say first 30 minutes of talking, go, yeah, yeah, it's physically strong, but now maybe not world champion material. So what are you looking for in an athlete? Where, well, what's talent for you? Yeah, that's an awesome question. Uh, I, I actually get asked that a lot and I do have a lot of people ask for coaching and I do have a conversation with everybody and I will, I will generally say within the first five minutes, I know whether it will work or not. Uh, for me initially, it's just that, that ease of communication. If we can, if we can easily talk back and forth and the conversation just flows naturally, uh, then, you know, in the future, you can have honest conversations. I think, uh, for a coach, You have to be very truthful with everything. It's, it's easy to be truthful when things are going well, but it's very difficult to be truthful when they're not. And you have to be able to do that. If you can't do that, then it's, then it's a really tough relationship and it's really tough to make somebody, make somebody a winner. Secondly, then I, you know, I like to, I like to say I'm looking for winners. Everybody's looking for winners though, but there's a, there's a, there's a subtle nuance, I think in great athletes and then, the, then the winners. And for me, that, that great athletes willing to do 98% of the work you ask them to do. They love to work. They love to, to endure. They love to push themselves. But then there's that one guy who will do more and, and there's no limit to saying yes or no. They just do, they'll do more. If you say six hours and it's, and it's winter time and it's cold, it's 30 degrees, high is going to be 30 degrees. Uh, that guy or that girl just does it. They just do it. They don't ask for a workout change. They don't ask for an alternative inside ride. They just go out and do it. And for me, finding that athlete and, and sort of sussing through that conversation to, to know that that person's just going to do that is, is really what I look for. And that's so important. I mean, um, I, I remember uh, rooming with one of my teammates and uh, the phone rings. And there was, hello, there was a little bit of a pause, maybe 10 seconds, and there was, okay, then there was a little bit of a pause, and then he hung up. And I said, who, who are you talking to? He was like, oh, that was my coach. Uh, he just told me my training plan for tomorrow. And I was like, I was like blown away that you could basically communicate that in like 30 seconds. And you seem to be more of that you know, hands-on coach that, you know, wants to get in there because I think a lot of that relationship between a coach and an athlete is more than, you know, just yes and no. It's that back and forth. And I can tell by just the way that you're speaking already is that, you know, those are the kind of people that you want. You don't want a person to just do what you say. You want them to engage with it. And I think that makes that, that coach-athlete, coach-client relationship so much stronger. But one of the things that fascinates me, and I'm curious if you have the same thing, is, you know, with, we, we all see the big stars winning, you know, and, and I'll use our old friend Fabian Conchalara as a perfect example. I mean, this guy was multiple Olympic champion, multiple world champion. But man, though, you know, sometimes the best athletes are the ones that need the most coaching, you know, not necessarily, you know, watt per kilogram and whatnot, but like that, that real coaching, that, that mental coaching, that reassurance, that being there on the good days and the bad days. Um, have you noticed that same thing with, with your athletes? Like that even, even the champions have normal challenges that they have to get through. It's not just, you know, copy and paste every single day or every single year. All right. So I literally just had this conversation. Uh, I think every, everybody struggles. Everybody has self-doubt. Everybody doesn't believe they're able to accomplish what they set out to do. It's not just the average bike racer, but it's, it's everybody. It's the, it's the winner of the, the day to, at some point has insecurities about what they can or can't do. And 
I love that part. If you can, if you can walk them through it and you can convince them they can do it or you, they, they buy into the process, uh, they, they bite into, to whatever tactic is, is going to be raced and, and figure out how to make it work. I love that. And, but just understanding that everybody struggles with it is, is I found it so mind blowing once, once I got to this level and worked with winners and, and you spend a lot of time at, at huge events and chasing big goals. Uh, but to go to Olympic games and have somebody like literally crying the night before, because they're, they're so afraid of what's going to not afraid, but their goal and everything they worked for is happening tomorrow. And they just don't know if they can pull it off. And then they do. It's like, this is so good. This is, this is the best part of sport. We are currently engrossed in the Tour de France. And if you're looking to tackle your own double ascent of the Mont Ventoux, don't worry, Outside Plus has you covered. Bobby and myself are both members and get to enjoy training plans, exclusive gear discounts, entry to cycling events and more, including access to premium content from other outside publications like Velo News, Trail Runner, Yoga Journal, Backpacker and Peloton Magazine. All in all, it's $350 worth of value for just $99. But if you enter our special coupon code, BobbyJens25, at checkout, you will get another 25% off. Go to valuenews.com slash outside plus and enter BobbyJens25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout to receive our special 25% discount. Now, back to our chat with Jim. So now you coach, I mean, you worked for US Cycling. You um, had probably more than one athlete to coach at the same time. Did you ever run into uh, the dilemma that the athlete you like maybe better is performing probably less than the other one. So in your job as national coach or team mm. coach, you should actually go for the better athlete because it's better for the team, better for the employee, but it would hurt your own feelings because you you just somehow like the other athlete better. Did that ever happen to you or is that something you go, yeah, I can't talk about it? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it happens to everybody. Um You know, you spend you spend a lot of time working with some athlete. Uh, they, they, you, you can emotionally get attached. You can emotionally get attached to seeing them succeed, wanting them to be successful. Uh, and you have the new bright superstar that comes up and, and just is better. That's how it is. Um, I think fortunately for me with my personality, and I, I don't know if this is good in just all around life, but I'm really good at compartmentalizing things. If, if I just have to objectively look at something and, and say, okay, he or she's better, uh, even if I work with this person, it is just, it is what it is. And you have to go with the best one. Um, so for me, like being able to separate coaching and running teams and, and directing, and I think this is a real dilemma for DSs and directors. Uh, you just have to separate the two and, and do what's right for the team almost. I'd say 99.5% of the time. Maybe there's a small, small time when you have to do something for the athlete that, that maybe is not right for the team, but that, that probably has a longer term goal of something you're trying to accomplish. So given so many race days when they, they haven't earned them, but you know, if they get the two or three stage races in them, they're going to be super good by August and, and your goals in the end of August and you just have to do it. Well, talking about goals in, in August. We're coming up to the postponed Olympic Games. What was your first Olympic Games with uh, in an acting role, being there as a national coach or as a, a performance director? Yeah, my first one was, was was with you in Athens in 2004. Okay, okay. I, I kind of did the math there. I was like, okay. So to Jens, I don't even think I've told you this story, but Jim was behind me in the time trial um, in 2004. And I, I didn't know Jim. 
you know, I was used to Bjarne Reese or Kim Anderson being on the radio. So I didn't even take a radio. Um, went all on field, didn't have a power meter. I was riding Ivan Basso's spare time trial bike because you remember I did the, the Bull Cup with you and I, I actually broke my bike um, at that race. But Jim, I've always been curious. I know we've danced around this a couple times in conversations, but for, for me, that was a very, very special day. But like when you were driving in the car, what did you see that I was doing right or what I was doing wrong? Did you have any idea that I was, you know, so close to a medal and wound up finally, you know, getting one? Was Can you give me a little bit of information about what your memories of yeah. your first Olympics and I, following me around? I think this is such a funny story. So Oach was directing the men. I was directing the women. Uh, we both had two time trials, so we both followed one of each other's time trials. Oach is with Tyler. Tyler comes in, but, you know, I think one of the favorites for that race anyways. Uh, you come in, and I remember that morning, I'm like, uh, hey, do you want a radio? And you're like, no, nah, I don't know. I'm like, if I'm honest with you, I'm riding out in Basso's bike. It's not even my bike. I don't even know how this bike fits. I'm just going to go out there and, and ride a time trial, see how I do. Uh, and we'll go from there. I'm like, yep, yeah, okay, perfect. Privately, I was like somewhat relieved because I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to tell Bobby Julik in an Olympic time trial that Bobby Julik doesn't know already? I'm going to sound like an idiot. Uh, so I was like so somewhat relieved, like, oh, we'll just enjoy the drive because it was, if you remember, it was along the beach and the ocean. It was a beautiful area. I'm like, this is a fantastic day. I'd already followed Dee Dee Barry that morning. She had a silver medal. So like everything in my life was great. I was like, this is fantastic. Uh, now I get to follow Bobby Julik and, and this is this is like, I'm like living a dream. And I am, a, like, for time trials, I do love time trials. And I sucked at him as a bike racer. But I do love the time trial. And and I started taking splits. I had, like, splits on, on the outbound leg, on the inbound leg. And we had to do it twice. I had a couple intermediate splits. And then we were getting UCI splits. Uh, so I knew all along that you were actually going really well. I was like, holy shit, this guy's flying. And... uh. I kept honking the horn, but you would ask me one time, you're like, were you honking the horn to motivate me? Cause I was going well, because that's what I thought. And I was like, yeah, okay. We'll say, it. I'll let you think that because that's great. I'm like, but the reality was there were people all over this course, walking out in the crosswalk, standing in the street. Uh, and I'm honking the horn, trying to get them out of the way and, and get them to move. And they would look up and they would jump out of the road, but your head's down and you're just like driving. And after the race, when you're like, were you, when you were honking and telling me I was going well, I was like so motivated. And I'm like, holy crap, that worked then. <laughs> but, well, that, that was your that was your first Olympics, and I, I have to say, you have a pretty good track record. I mean, 2008, 2012, 2016, you win with uh, Kristen Armstrong, and you know now here we are. It was supposed to be 2020. Now it's 2021. I mean, you're kind of like, you kind of got this dialed. What what can we expect in the upcoming Olympic Games in Tokyo from our American riders? Yeah, you know, I hope good things, to be honest. Uh, I think we have really good teams in all five disciplines. We, we set some pretty big goals for ourselves after 2016. Uh, I took a little hiatus there and left. Um, when, when I came back, one of, the, one of the things that did help recruit me back was that uh, the goals hadn't changed and I'm like, okay, I like the big goals. Um, I don't necessarily have to achieve them to, to feel good about myself, but, uh, I do like the big goals cause it, it makes you work every single day and, and never feel comfortable. Um, on the men's side, you know, I think if you look at our men's road race team, uh, we only have two spots. Uh, there's not a lot you can do with two spots. Um, I don't, although I do think on this course that McNulty, coming out of the tour, uh, if he's healthy and injury-free and not sick, uh, he could be really good on this road race course. Um, what we really did think of, though, was the time trial for the men and selected time trialists. Uh, I think Lawson Craddock's a great time trialist. Um, if you look at his time trial results over the, this quad the last four years, uh, in any race, any level, any distance, uh, any terrain, his, his average place is like eighth. And we're talking like 15 time trials, 16 time trials. So he, he's a really 
a gifted time trial just sort of falls off everybody's radars as being a, a gifted time trialist. Um, I think on this course with a little bit of terrain, a little bit of undulation, uh, fairly long, I, I think it actually plays into his, his skill set, uh, maybe even better than, than anybody might think. Uh, and he happens to be riding really well right now. So, uh, so I have a lot of, I have a lot of expectation out of him. Uh, McNulty is, he's one of the best time trialists of his generation. Um, from a junior through U23s, he's always been on the world championship podium. Uh, he was a junior world champion. I think he should have been U23 world champion a couple times. Uh, he's just maybe doesn't pay as much attention to the detail or his equipment as he should. And I think his aerodynamics generally have cost him his world, those world titles. Uh, so he, he's a very gifted time trialist. And then you put him on this sort of course with, with the same undulation and train and the form he'll have coming out of the tour. I'm like, you know, I wouldn't count him out either of banging a big result. Uh, so I think, I think I'm hopeful there. Uh, on the women's side, we have two awesome time trialists. Chloe Diger, uh, I think everybody has a ton of expectation out of her. Um, you know, maybe nobody knew what to expect until Knoxville and she wins Knoxville and shows that she's, she's back. Um, I think when she's back, she's, she's hands down the best time trialist in the world. Uh, you have the two Dutch women, Van der and Van Bluden, who are, who are super tough to beat. Uh, but, but really the way we looked at it was, okay, all things considered equal. Uh, Chloe's the best. Van Vluden, Van de Bregen are, are two and three. Uh, but people have bad days. People crash. People have collarbones. Uh, the heat could be a factor. Um, there's a lot that can go wrong, right? And if something goes wrong to the one, to one of the three there, uh, then we have this, we have Amber Neben. Amber Neben is like, you know, she's, she's older, but we showed with Kristen that you can win at an old age, at an older age. Um, and on this terrain and on this course, I would, I would say she's probably fourth or fifth best in the world, just straight up. And now you take somebody out of that because they, they got sick. They didn't ride well. They didn't have their day. And now you have a second rider also hunting for a medal. So. Um, I'm super optimistic on what we can accomplish and what, what they can accomplish straight away uh, in the road races, uh, time trials. Our road race team for the women is a little bit different. Uh, the last four Olympics, we've always gone in with a, a clear goal, a clear leader, um, a clear tactic, like we are going to create this tactic in this scenario and, and we're going to make it happen, in, in which case we always have. Uh, we haven't got the the result or that, that race affirmation that I think we crave and desire. But if I look back at it, like in 04, Kristen was caught in metal position at, at 1K to go solo. Uh, there were, there were two riders in front of her, but that's still, still bronze medalist, nothing to sneeze at. Um, in 08, we set the day up for Amber. Uh, she had a drop chain at, at the moment that, that we'd really set this attack up. Uh, attack did go with Nicole Cook and company and, that went away and won a medal. Um, but we spent the entire day setting up that situation. Uh, in 12, we had Shelly Olds in the break and she flats out of it. Uh, she's probably the first or second best sprinter in that break. Um, she flats out at, at something like 18K to go. Um, you're just not coming back. And then 16, Mar Abbott gets caught at, at 200 meters. So it's, it's like we put together great races and great tactics and had the right personnel uh, for the day and for the courses and for the tactics we wanted to race. We just haven't got that result. Um, I think with the women this year, it's, it's less clear cut, which just means we can be a bit more aggressive and take chances and, and just be disruptive. So you already answered our, probably one of our next questions. <laughs> Chloe Dygaard is back. She, she's doing well. She's fully recovered and everything is well healed up. Uh, she had time to train to come back and... That's really good to, to hear, right? Because, I mean, how many medals she had at Worlds and whatnot, it would be a shame if she, you know, would have never had a chance to come back. So it's really good to hear that, that Chloe Dygaard is, is back. Yeah, I'll tell you, I was in the car behind her in, in Amola last year, and I think I was, uh, I was at her side within 
easily within 10 seconds of the crash. Uh, when I got to her, she was literally just trying to sit herself up and I saw this leg and I pushed her shoulders back down and I'm like, you don't want to see this. And she was still somewhat lucid at that point. And she's, she looks at me, she's like, am I done? And in my, out of my mouth, I said yes for the day. But in my mind, I'm like, yeah, maybe forever. Uh, it was that bad. And, you know, immediately we, they airlifted her to the hospital. She had great care. We had a, we had a really good team doctor that was, uh, really good with, with the Italian doctors and made sure that we did everything right. They did everything right. Uh, gave her the best treatment straight away, uh, put the best medical team around her with, with Red Bull and the USOC and, and Kenya SRAM teams. Uh, so she had great care from the get go. Um, Chloe's challenge is she, she doesn't always listen. Sometimes she just does what she wants to do. And to her credit, I think in this comeback, she was, she was a hundred percent engaged. She, she listened. If we said, don't train, you can't train, you can't ride. Even though she felt fine, she didn't. Um, we waited, we waited for a full six months before we did anything heavy, any, any real riding. Uh, everything up to that point would have just been almost no tension on the chain. Um, no, no, nothing long, nothing hard, just really light pedaling just to get the range of motion back. And once we crossed that six month barrier and had enough MRIs and, and CAT scans to be confident that the ligaments and tendons had healed, uh, then we started starting to started trying to build her up from them. And, and now if you, if you go back, this is only three months ago. So I think to, to bring her to the point she's at now is, and where she's riding at is, is, uh, I'd say a small miracle to be honest. Um, but she's good. Uh, she was super good in Knoxville. Um, she's been super good on the track all month. So I think, I think the long-term or the long range plan we put in place and, and knew what we were going to do, uh, it all worked out. We didn't have very many setbacks. So, so I think here we are and have a shot at this. Whether it's riding with new people you met on the platform or just riding with old teammates, the people that Zwift connects you with push you harder than you could ever push yourself, let alone when it's just you on the trainer in your garage or pain cave. My next favorite part is the training. Training is a huge part of Zwift. There are literally hundreds of customizable training plans you can choose from. And every workout is an immersive experience that can take you from Zwift's world-class climbs to the streets of London, New York, or even to a new Japanese-inspired world. Those are just a few of the nine unique worlds you can explore. Many times, I find myself just riding around, checking out the sights and seeing new little Easter eggs they've hidden in the game. When I'm riding one of the UCI championship courses, or in the jungle on the gravel roads, or inside a volcano. Hey, I'm just taking it all in. Time seems to fly by, but I can still manage to get a great workout in every time. If you want to compete in races that put your training to the test and see if you're headed in the right direction, you can. There's a new event starting every five minutes, including massive group rides, races for every category, and even time trials. Right now, you can join the Fun is Fast event series with training rides, races, and thousands of other riders from around the world to chase. It's really never been easier to find your fun training indoors. I love it. All you need to get started is a bike, a trainer, and the Zwift app. Get a free seven-day trial, no strings attached, at Zwift.com. Zwift, where fun is fast. I tell you, the Olympics um, is such an important event, you know, for the funding for USA Cycling. You know, you guys are on a longer Olympic cycle this year, being five years, and next year will be three years. So getting towards the end of, of our time that we have with you, um, I'm interested to hear from 
a U.S. cycling standpoint. Um, what is your vision at USA Cycling to identify more talent and develop that talent moving into the future? I mean, I didn't know what NICA was until I came out here and Enzo Hincapi, George's son, started participating in these events. Uh, Mari Holden has started the Let's Ride program, which is teaching kids how to ride their bikes safely and provide a first point of contact with USA Cycling for, for families um, you know, in the future and providing access to kids, uh, to, to bikes for kids that are, you know, otherwise don't have that sort of opportunity. But so those are two amazing programs, but I'm wondering for the next Olympic cycle and the one after that, um, what, what can USA Cycling do to get more kids on bikes and to get more kids interested in cycling, choose this as a profession and hopefully go on to fulfill their Olympic dreams? Yeah. So that's a good question. I think this next Olympic cycle, you really have to look at Paris and LA as, as one cycle. Paris is going to come so fast. Uh, literally next year you have to start getting results so that in two years from now in 2023, you can qualify events. So Olympics happen every four years, but the, the qualifying process, um, the qualifying to get to the qualifying, uh, the athlete development to get them to the qualifying, to the qualifying, it, it all starts, uh, really early and has to build on itself. So we're looking, this is, is a seven year sort of stretch here. Uh, Paris being a intermediate goal or a middle goal. Um, but really with, with eyes on LA, uh, if we're, if we're really honest, uh, the Olympics for us, it, I mean, the significance of it is a majority of our funding comes from the USOC, USOPC. The other, the other really, uh, large contributor is, uh, the USA cycling development foundation. Um, and then a, a smaller contributor to that is USA Cycling itself. Um, so a majority of our money is based around those Olympic results and uh, the potential for Olympic results. That's what the USOC is really, USOPC is really looking at, right? Do you have metal potential? And if you do, then we'll start funding you now. Um, but you have, to, you have to prove you're capable of winning. And I think what we've done the last four years is, is before Olympics is prove that we can win and we can consistently win and they can count on our medal count. Uh, consequently, if we put forward a plan that says we can win X number of medals and this is how we're going to do it, they tend to, to buy into it because of our track record. Um, what we're doing to get more kids on bikes and, and this started with less ride uh, is to build out the bottom end of that, that grassroots level cycling. So what gaps were in the, the pathways of the pipelines that, uh, weren't being filled, where could we come in and, uh, use it, use our leverage to scale a little bit larger than somebody else might be, um, and start feeding the bottom end of that, that pathway, which, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a, it's so critical in what you do that you have athletes to choose from and that you have athletes in the pathway of the pipeline and people want to ride bikes, uh, later down the road. But if you look at immediate future, it's just, it's so hard for people to, to grasp, uh, let's ride was, was part of a bigger plan for us. Um, we want to start with less ride, uh, start introducing a, a model that we could build out and scale. And we could hopefully, uh, hand over to coaches, to PE teachers, to YMCA day camps, uh, in any, any, and everything. And anybody that wants to host one can, um, the next phase of that is going to be probably what we'll call let's race. So we get you on a bike, we get you introduced to the cycling community. Uh, we want to, we want to help you become interested in racing. So how do you go from riding to racing? Um, from less race, we want to introduce you to the scholastic programs, uh, USA BMX, uh, high school scholastic racing with USA cycling, NICA, uh, collegiate cycling, um, these steps. And then from there, you know, then we have the ODA, we have Olympic development camps, um, then we have national teams, we have world teams, we have Olympic teams, et cetera. So what we're really trying to do with, with the, the bottom end of this is just build out, uh, some infrastructure that maybe was, uh, not as established or maybe at one point we could say in Bobby, you'll remember this back in the, uh, 
eighties, nineties, there were, there was just, there was great club infrastructure and that club infrastructure is gone. It doesn't exist. So where we would have came into a club at, at 12 or 13 years old, uh, and we'd have had an older peer group that would have taught us how to race bikes and, and helped us train and helped us ride, uh, that it's not so prevalent now. It doesn't exist. So we have to, we have to sort of reinvent that, that lower, uh, pathway. That was really awesome the way you explained that all to us. Actually, now I'm so fired up. I can't wait for the Olympics to start to see your plans to fulfill and come into reality. Even though I'm German, I should be you know, going for the German team. But you put so much, um, you know, passion into it um, and you really believe in, in that plan. That's fantastic. Fantastic. Talk to you. One last quick question. Who is that rider behind your shoulder on the wall? Is that Kristen Armstrong? Or? That, yeah, that's Kristen's first world title. So uh, oh, that's, fantastic. that's the one that was difficult. Awesome. Thanks a lot for all the time you gave us. That was a fascinating talk. I enjoyed every minute of it. Great. Thank you. Yeah, it's fun to, it's fun to come and chat with you guys. I think Jens, you're American anyways. We've already adopted you. Uh, it's, it's okay to root for us. Well, Jim, um, man, just talking about Casper Classics and, you know, growing up, I had this conversation with somebody the other day about growing up in Colorado. I mean, at the time that we were growing up, you, me, and Dirk Friel started racing. You know, we, we had races every weekend. We had the World Championships in Colorado Springs. We had the Olympic Training Center in, in Colorado Springs. We, we, we just were blessed. And I hope with, with all that vision that you just basically laid out for us is that the kids in this next generation can experience what we experienced back then, which is, you know, cycling was everywhere. And it, was, it wasn't just a, a niche sport. It was... It was huge and it was so much fun, you know, growing up in that. And I hope these kids, you know, don't have to get on a plane and, you know, travel 2000 miles every fourth weekend just to race their bikes that they actually get to race their bikes, you know, in the sort of environment that we had that we were so blessed to have. So thank you so much for your time today. Uh, all the best in the Olympics. And, you know, let's uh, Let's get let's catch up with you again after the Olympics to see how everything went and maybe get a little debrief from uh, your Olympic experience. Okay, sounds great. Yep, thanks for having me, guys. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Huge thanks to Jim Miller for being our guest. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us.